So today <laughs> we are actually going to talk about happiness and joy. Um, distracted. Mm-hmm. Yep. That's sometimes the practice is just like that. Sometimes literally the whole entire meditation practice, I'm uh, like waiting for the timer to go off. That's the whole practice. And yet still we do it more grounded and still angry. Folks are talking about uh, how they feel after just a short one minute breath meditation. Mm-hmm. Good. Okay. So I'm going to pop away uh, from the chat now and go into my notes because I have a lot of notes about this. But I want to start with a quote from the Dalai Lama um, about happiness because I just think it's so pertinent right now. I feel like our joy, our pleasure, our contentment, right, can be a source of power and awakening in this time that feels really freaking hard. And here's what the Dalai Lama has to say about it. The Dalai Lama says, they've taken so much from me. They've taken our ability to worship in the way we might. They've taken parts of our culture. They burn texts. They've destroyed so much. Why should I let them take my happiness? Why should I let them take my happiness? Right, so that's sort of the ground that we're starting on. Um, the Buddha <laughs> said once he was enlightened, I would not be teaching that this genuine happiness was possible unless it were so. Right? Unless it were so. So if you had asked me maybe 20 years ago, um, <laughs> If I was going to be into, I was already into yoga from like a really early age, just being in my body sort of became this revolutionary act for me after uh, a lot of trauma in my life, right? To be in the earth, in my body, moving, present, felt like a revolution, like something like the most radical thing, the most radical response I could possibly have had to what happened to me. But Buddhism and mindfulness, I was like, they are always talking about fucking suffering. (laughs) That was um, that was the way it seemed to me. And uh, I think it's really interesting. I purposefully wore my Buddha shirt here. It has the um, big fat happy Buddha on it for a purpose. And um, over there, I don't think you can see it, but I have also a little statue of a reminder, and it's the Buddha with like the huge belly, just like so full, laughing and joyful, right? Um, and in Buddhist psychology, there are two different kinds of happiness. So the Buddha says, I would not be teaching that this genuine happiness was possible unless it were so, right? Um, and the first word, that he uses to describe like there's two sorts of kinds of happiness and the first word that he uses is pamoja right and it's a poly word and this word describes a happiness that is based on the wonderful things that happy happen to us in this world right so it's like um i had a really good meal or really good sex 
or, um, oh my gosh, I talked to this friend that I hadn't spoken to in so long and it was just wonderful. Or I got to do yoga and be in my body and it felt absolutely magnificent. Right. And then there's another word and it is called sukha, sukha, which is also a poly word. And this is the happiness without cause. It's a happiness for no reason, and it is um, not dependent on anything. It's independent of experience in this material world. It's a um, place of freedom, right? And it's one of the ways in which if you go back and listen to the equanimity podcast or class that we talk about this kind of happiness, this kind of joy, contentment is there. It's one of the qualities of equanimity. Um, and it really is a space that has the freedom to be all, to be everything, right? Um, it is open and spacious. A lot of times the metaphor that is used is sky, right? And it really is this arrow, we're using words, right, as arrows to point to this natural way of being that we all have. It's a natural state of being. And they're related, because the um, material contentment, right, the happiness that we experience in this material world, the joy we get from like, oh my gosh, it's been very hot here in Portland, from like eating a popsicle on a hot day, and then creating a capacity inside of ourselves to notice and be mindful of that experience lays the ground for the experience of sukha. So they're interrelated. It's not like there's the material happiness and then there's the immaterial happiness, the sukha, that that natural state of goodness, of contentment that is available to all of us, no matter what, no matter the suffering, right? And that's why the Buddhists point to the suffering so much as they're like, yes, there is suffering in the world. And then also there's the way out. There's the way out. Um, in the Pomoja, the, the material contentment is the hardest, right? Because we're living in this body and this human house full of holes. And our brains, we have a negativity bias in our brains, which we've talked about lots of times, but just to refresh y'all who maybe aren't aware of it, is that our actual brains, the way that they work, is that when we experience something like um, life-threatening, <laughs> stress, right? Or uh, something that our body experiences as life-threatening, but isn't actually. And this is the part where our um, nervous system regulation becomes really important for us because what has happened in our modern day culture is that we are not in a lot of truly life-threatening experiences, right? But our nervous systems evolutionarily wise haven't caught up with it. And so we mistake stress or difficult, challenging things for life-threatening experiences, and it creates a pathway in our brain to really remember that so that we can avoid and not do that again, right? And so that it's this really, it happens so fast, like way faster in the pathway in the brain goes way deeper, right? So many of us, the most classic example, I think, um, for many of us is our dating experiences, right? Our intimate re partner relationship experiences is that 
we get hurt, our nervous system experiences it as uh, some sort of life-threatening experience. We have a major negativity bias. And then we're like always avoiding people who, I don't know, um, get cheese on their burgers because that one guy did, you know, (laughs) or whatever. Like we tend to sort of like uh, hmm, create a lot of like a broad swath like that we lay on top of other things. I'm trying, I'm trying to think of the words, but I can't think of it. I'm not being very articulate about it. But the point is, is that something can happen mm-hmm, where we mistake one thing for our body mistakes, something that is life threatening. And then we like really create a pathway about that. Um, so there's that. Right. And that's what makes like the happiness in this moment in this material world really difficult. Um, There's this beautiful poem. Oh, and then the two stories that we have. So we tend to have two stories in our nervous system. There's the what if that keeps us from contentment and joy. And then there's the what's wrong. The what if and the what's wrong. So the what if is... um, it, the if only story is another way. If only I was um, living in Hawaii. If only I uh, had a house by the ocean. If only I was dating the perfect person. If only I was, um, I don't know, 10 pounds thinner. Our body stuff really comes up here. If only I, um, I don't know, had this one book at Pals and I got to go get it right now, then I'll be happy. If only I, <laughs> that's me. Um, <laughs> If only I had more coffee, if only I, there's like all of these stories and you might think about your if only stories for a moment, right? And then there's the what's wrong stories, right? And that kind of goes back to the dating example. We're constantly scanning for what's wrong in ourselves and in our people, right? And then in the world. And some of that is like really justified. We have to, right? Especially most of us here, when we're walking around in the world, I'm constantly freaking scanning, making sure that I'm safe, right? We have to, we have to, and we cannot identify as a scared person. I have to scan for my safety and I'm not going to walk around the world scared, right? That's freedom. That's the freedom. It's the both holding that paradox of the both and. Um, so there's that. Okay, here's this beautiful poem from Hafiz, who's one of my favorites. What is the difference between your existence and that of a saint? The saint knows that the spiritual path is a sublime chess game with God, and that the beloved has just made such a fantastic move, and that the saint is now continually tripping over joy and bursting out in laughter and saying, I surrender. Whereas, my dear, I'm afraid you still think you have a thousand serious moves. Right? A thousand serious moves. So how do we work with joy in our practice? Okay. So um, first, I want to read from Lama Rod for a second. Because this is he's just so good. He starts this chapter on happiness with a quote from Alice Walker. Don't wait around for other people to be happy for you. Any happiness you get, you've got to make yourself. That's Alice Walker. And then this is Lama Rod. 
He writes, I always say that I'm not interested in people being Buddhist or meditators or engaged in any spiritual path in general. But what I am interested in is people living lives where they feel resourced enough to limit violence against themselves and others and to experience a sense of happiness. I'm committed to supporting people to be happy because it has been my experience that happy people create less violence. That is the radical revolutionary act part of this, my friends, which is why we're talking about it today. I often think about the times when I have been violent and how unhappy I have been in those times. It is not a privilege to be happy. When we experience happiness, we are not taking it away from someone else. Happiness is the natural state of our minds as it holds space for all the material of our minds and our experiences, both the comfortable experiences as well as the uncomfortable ones and everything in between. Happiness doesn't exist outside of ourselves. It is who we are. It is the essence of our minds. Right. It's not a privilege. In um, Sonia Renee Taylor's book, the body, My Body is Not an Apology, she talks about this moment where an artist and, um, I, Frank, I can't remember who it is, but I'm bad at that. Um, they were watching Erica Badu perform and they were just like marveling at it. Like, oh my gosh. Oh, it was just like gorgeous. And then the reporter says, are you scared <laughs> to go on after this performance? to this artist and she says have you seen me perform (laughs) and what I love about that is that there's like the celebration and the joy and the like oh of seeing um Erica perform and then there's also the claiming of power there like have you seen me perform I'm not scared after that like I also can experience happiness I also can be powerful. I also can be great, right? And it doesn't take anything away from Erica Badu, right? We can both be happy. Doesn't mean we're stealing it from anyone else. So how do we work with joy in our practice? There's two different approaches to awakening happiness. One is mindfulness. And that's what we talked about in the beginning. What's here? And can I be with it? And from that comes this expansive, spacious state. Right. I would add on to what Lama Ron, Rod said and say, um, not only, friends, do I feel as if um, happy people are less violent, I would say that mindful people are more likely to be in integrity, to make decisions from a kind and spacious space rather than from a space that is like closed and rigid. Joy and happiness tastes of freedom, right? Suffering tastes of stuckness. Mm -hmm. So the mindfulness practice when we pause and are just able to be with what's here Right, that's the loving it all. That's the saying yes to everything that is. And that's spaciousness. 
And then the second way to work in our practice, in our daily life, on the mat, in our mindfulness practice, is to begin to really notice the moments when we feel content, when we feel joyful, when we feel generous, when we are trusting, when we are connected. And to pause there and to really be like, mmm, this. Because that's what helps us to start to overcome the negativity bias in our brains, that pathway that happens so fast and goes so deep, right? The positive stuff, our brain's like, eh, great, you know? (laughs) Dopamine is wonderful. It helps us to remember, like if we were a bear and we discovered where the good berries are, our brain makes a really wonderful pathway because of the dopamine (laughs) to remember where those berries are, right? But we gotta like, we can't always be eating the berries as a way to experience joy. Part of this path is noticing and connecting with the places in our lives where those qualities of generosity and gratitude and contentment and equanimity and trust and connectedness exist. Right, and pausing there purposefully, purposefully pausing in them, feeling what the body feels like coming back to the earth us, feeling what our breath is like, what does our heart feel like, noticing how much the energy of Lakshmi and yoga is the energy of this, this is the best way I've heard it explained, is you take a bite of an apple and you're like, oh my God, this apple is so good and you want to share it. And pass it to the person next to you and be like, taste this. Right? And that's another way to work with it. Taste this. We experience um, contentment and happiness and joy, this radical practice that they can't take from us, like the Dalai Lama said, through the vehicle of the body. Right? Hmm. Okay. gladdening the mind isn't moving into the binary (laughs) right it's getting large enough to truly include it all um and this creates the space and the atmosphere for sukha which is where we're going to end right um sukha which is our unconditioned happiness there are no conditions it is the sky and it is always with us it doesn't need anything another for those of us who were brought up um, in a Christian tradition, Judeo-Christian tradition, actually, we would think of the word as grace, that unearned love, that unearned sense of contentment. It is just there. It's right there. Right. So the Buddha, as many of us know, um, went through a period after he left the, the palace where he did self-renunciation and he almost died. He became thin. He said, there's a writing um, somewhere where he is said to have said that when he peed, right, or pooped, that he would fall over into it because he was so weak. He was dying. And it was a grueling, grueling sort of penance. So he went in the binary, right? the luxury of the palace, having all of his needs met, and he went the opposite way, which was the tradition of the time. It wasn't radical at all, actually, is the way I've heard it described. That if you were going to be an aesthetic, that's what you did. 
And he was so good at it and so disciplined that he had five followers watching him die, essentially. And he was questioning this, right? It was sometimes this is called the first uh, psychoanalysis, <laughs> right? He's like, why? I like I'm not getting beyond the body to any sort of awakening here, right? All I think about is the suffering of my body. And I can barely, my, his hair was falling out. It was horrible. And so he asked the question, and this is a really big deal, right? It's always in the inquiry. He says, might there be another way to awakening? Might there be another way to awakening? And trusting his own intuition, he followed that, right? And probed, like inside of himself, is there another way? And what came up was this memory of him as a child sitting underneath a rose apple tree, right? Um, and it was an episode of pleasure. It just like tugged at him. It was like this feeling of like, mm, he was like leaning against it and so content. And he was watching his father. Um, they were cutting the hay in the fields. And it was this feeling of, mm, and the tree was shading him right? It was spontaneous. This is what he says. I thought of a time when my Shakyan father was working and I was sitting in the cool shade of a rose apple tree, quite secluded from sensual desires, secluded from unwholesome things. I had entered upon an abode in the first meditation. This is called his first meditation when he was a child, which is accompanied by thinking and exploring with happiness and pleasure born of seclusion. So in the silence experiencing this, exploring this wonder, this awe. And then he got afraid of the pleasure, <laughs> right? Because he had been conditioned to think that happiness, as Lama Rod said, is a privilege, right? That it is a luxury. Does it, doesn't this, <clears throat> isn't this amazing? Like how current it is? Like, um, and so then he wondered, he brings curiosity, he brings wonder and awe. Why am I afraid of such pleasure? Right? And um, Mark Epstein says, this is the Buddha at his most psychologically astute. Right? A psychologically astute. And he says, it is pleasure that has nothing to do, he's talking about sukha here, with the sensual desires. Right? It has nothing to do with that. And so that's what made him afraid because it was spontaneous. It welled up his own wisdom, that wondering of, is there another way, brought up this feeling of just, ah, oh, right? Hmm. There is a, um, in the 14th century, a Tibetan teacher who was the founder of the Dalai Lama School of Buddhism. Um, on the moment of his enlightenment, this makes me so excited to read to you all. He says, it's exactly the opposite of what I expected, <laughs> right? Because he also had that moment of like, oh, it's good. This awakening, this moment, this enlightenment is good, right? It's the sukha. So after the Buddha reflected there uh, and saw through his fear, um, he saw a pleasure that did not depend on any sort of gratification from outside. It was completely free. 
completely free. And that it was just from relaxing into his own being, right, leaning back into that sky that he was able to experience it. And guess what happened? Those five followers left him (laughs) in this moment because he came out when he like figured it out. He was like, oh, this is the thing. This is the radical moment, right? That transformed everything was that leaning back into the essential goodness, into the essential contentment that transformed everything. But it was not uh, what they were expected. They were expecting this person, um, Gotama was his name, um, when he, before he was the Buddha, the five followers were watching him and they were like, wow, he's like either going to die or get enlightened. And then a woman came by after he had this realization and offered him food and he took it and nourished himself. And they were like, oh, well, he's not getting enlightened now. <laughs> you know. And they left him. They left him, which I think is so, also so current. Right? If you are on the the Instagram or anything at all right now, you could see how um, any mention of this might feel sort of radical, like it's not allowed. We are like, this isn't something to be talked about, right? Which is exactly what makes it so revolutionary. Adrienne Marie Brown, did I bring it up? I was looking at it downstairs, has a book called Pleasure Activism, which is a really gorgeous book too. Um, I think, yeah, it's about our bodies and about the radical act of experiencing pleasure here in our bodies with sex, with joy, with friends, even as we're grieving, even as we're suffering, even as it's hard, not letting them take that from us. Right. Um, so I'm going to end here. Mark Epstein says the path to enlightenment requires us to recover the capacity for joy, not by imitating the Buddha's process, but by initiating our own. As the Buddha found in his recovery of his childhood experience, the discomfort with joy is understandable. It challenges most of our basic assumptions about rewards and punishment. We are trained to assume that sensual gratification or its absence is the defining element of our pleasure. This is part of what is revolutionary about the Buddhist approach. It marks the introduction of a positive psychology to the West, one that is rooted in a radical rethinking of the route to happiness, that it is not reliant on external things. That's me. So that's what we got today for this practice. Um, We're going to do... I think let's move first and we'll do it at the end, the one from Lama Rod. I also wanted to say that Lama Rod has some beautiful aspects of happiness, some of which are the same as mine and a little bit different, but he says space, trust, connectedness, and accepting. I just have more, I guess. Generosity, gratitude, right? That expansive, that taste of freedom. Um, Any questions, my loves, on this before we close? this part of it and move our bodies.